Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Desire the unadulterated milk of the word like a newborn baby, that you may grow thereby. His divine power has given to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, that by these uh, we have been given exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust." Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. Before we open up God's word together this morning, let's bow our heads together and ask God's guidance on our study of the scripture. Our Father, we're thankful for all that you have given us in your word, that your word is that which you have revealed and overseen and providentially superintended as you breathed it into and through the human authors, the human writers of Scripture, that as such these are not the words of men but the words that you have intended for us to study and to learn. There is a power inherent in them because they are the truth. They are the absolute truth, and the Scripture is infallible and without error. So, Father, we are thankful that you have given us your word, and part of its power is that it is the means by which you have determined that we would be sanctified. As Jesus prayed, Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. So, Father, we pray that now as we take the time to study on your, of your word and reflect about what you have said, that God the Holy Spirit would make it clear to each of us how we are to apply these things in our lives, making your word the centerpiece of our spiritual life and our spiritual growth, for that is what you have intended. And we pray this in Christ's name, amen. All right, open your Bibles with me to Ephesians chapter 4, and we're going to continue our study today But part of what I thought through last night as I was preparing is just the need to uh, look at what we have come to understand already in this passage. If you take a look at what we have in front of us in Ephesians chapter 4, we see that we have a paragraph or a section that began in verse 7. And it goes from verse 7 down through verse 16. What is of interest and that we should pay attention to is that when we come to uh, when we come to verse eleven, we see that a new sentence begins, and it begins, "He himself gave." That is the main clause. Okay, for those of you who are grammar challenged, that means everything else is related primarily back to that statement that Christ gave something, and everything else flows from that. So it starts with this fact that Christ has given the church something. He gave gifts, gifted individuals, actually, in verse 11. Verse 12 describes their purpose and the ultimate goal, 
which is in verse 13, which is what I'm going to focus on this morning uh, as we get there, kind of an overview. Because what you should notice is that though this sentence begins in verse 11, it ends at the end of verse 16. That's a complicated sentence. And what a sentence does is a sentence is the basic unit through which we express a thought. That's just a basic definition from any any fifth grade grammar. A sentence expresses a thought. But sometimes there are subordinate thoughts to the main idea. The main idea is Christ gave these gifted people. And then Paul says a lot about them. And Paul is one who is... Uh, known for very, very long sentences, and Ephesians has four or five of the longest sentences in his epistles. And it takes a lot of time to break them down. Even uh, a lot of uh, men who have scholars who have written commentaries uh, struggle with and disagree with each other as to how these subordinate clauses should relate to each other. And it's not like, oh, that's just a grammar exercise. No, it's not, because those terms, those phrases, those clauses, and how they relate to each other are fundamental, and they have serious implications on what we believe and what we do in church and understanding why we as believers are to be involved in a church that follows a biblical pattern. And today we live in a world where many, many churches, I would say the vast number of them, only give superficial, uh, a superficial nod to the scriptures. And they have ideas of what churches should do that are based on psychology and sociology rather than on what the Word of God says. And this is a crucial passage for understanding not just why we go to a certain church and what the goal of the ministry is, but it directly relates to our own walk with the Lord and how we are to live our lives and what God has provided for us in that, in that spiritual life. So we are in these verses, 11 to 13, where it talks about what Christ gave in verse 11, and he himself gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. And then we have the purpose. We talked about this last time. We'll review it again a little later. For the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry. That should be understood primarily for the equipping of the saints. That's your primary immediate purpose. The result of that is the work of ministry. So work of ministry comes as a result of equipping the saints. How do we equip the saints? Well, we saw that the word for equipping is has various uh, forms, and one of the forms is used in 2 Timothy 3:16 and 17, that it's the word of God that prepares us, that equips us to live the spiritual life. And so you have for the equipping of the saints... The purpose for that is the work of ministry or service, serving one another in the local church. And then the long-term result is it edifies or it builds up or strengthens the body of Christ. And then it continues. The sentence isn't over with yet. There's going to start about the ultimate goal until we all come to the unity of the faith. Well, what is that? I thought you said we're 
already have unity back in um, the beginning of the chapter, back in Ephesians uh, chapter 4, verse 3. We are to endeavor to keep the unity that is already there. This is part of that process of how we do that. Until we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, and those two things are directly connected to one another. And what I'm going to show you is the and there should not be translated as and because that indicates you're coupling two equal things together. Often the word and has what is called by grammarians an ascensive use. What that means is it should be translated uh, that this is coming to the unity of the faith, even the knowledge of the Son of God. So it connects that. The, the concept of the faith is specifically targeted to be related to the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So a mature person is reflecting the character of Christ. Now, that seems all pretty simple, but there's so much here that we just have to take it apart. So what I wanted to do was, first of all, to review us on what we're learning about the church. And I'm, this is just think of this as a pop quiz. I don't want anybody to raise your hand or write it down or anything, but I want you to think about the questions that I'm asking. First of all, we talked about the nature of the church, what is, is what the church is, and so we talked about when the church began and when the church will end, that there has not been a church all through history. It began at a specific time, and it will end at a specific time, so that there's something unique and distinctive about the church. So when did the church begin? The church began in A.D. 33. It began 50 days after the crucifixion on the day of Pentecost. And that's described in Acts chapter 2. And it will end at the rapture of the church in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 to 18, when the Lord Jesus Christ will descend from heaven in the clouds with a shout and with the trump of the archangel and the dead in Christ will rise first, and then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds, and thus we shall forever be with the Lord. And that happens before that horrible period in the future known as the uh, tribulation, known as Daniel's 70th week or the time of Jacob's wrath. Uh, in Matthew 16:18, Jesus talks about the fact that he will build his church, so we know that it didn't exist then, it was in the future. And the term, word church isn't used until Acts 5:11 in the book of Acts, and there it's already established. So we know that the church began somewhere between those two references. That means you don't have a church in the Old Testament. That's very important because a lot of people confuse Israel with the church. Now, that's my opening point, and when I get to number 11 in the review, you'll see why that's important. This shows that Israel and the church are distinct. God's plan for Israel and God's plan for the church are completely distinct. Second, what's the distinctive sign of the church? The distinctive sign of the church is the baptism by the Holy Spirit. Prior to Acts 2, there's no baptism by the Holy Spirit. 
And after the rapture, there will not be any baptism by the Spirit because the baptism of the Spirit is in one way designed to create this new distinctive people of God that we refer to as the church. In Galatians 3.27 and 28, we read, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. It happens at the instant of salvation. There is neither Jew nor Greek. See, up until the day of Pentecost, there's a distinction between Jew and Greek. God has a plan for Israel, and Gentiles were not were, were part of that plan, but in a secondary way. But it's not until after the resurrection and ascension of Christ and the coming of the Holy Spirit that Jew and Gentile are now united together in one body. There's neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So there's this new unity in the body of Christ as a result of the baptism by the Holy Spirit. So that did not happen all the way through the Old Testament. And there are people who believe that and teach that, but they're not paying attention to what the Scripture says. Third, how and when does someone enter the church? Well, you enter the church through salvation. And in all ages, salvation is the same. It is faith in the saving promise of God. Now, before the cross, the saving promise of God was, I will provide a Savior in the future who will pay the penalty for sin. And so you anticipated the fulfillment of that promise. You looked forward to it. You believed that one day God would send a Savior, the Messiah. Once the Messiah had come and died on the cross, paid the penalty for our sins, now we look back to that finished, completed event uh, that occurred in A.D. 33, and we must recognize that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and as John puts it, that we are saved by believing on who he is and what he did, did for us. That's what it means by believing in his name. So we look back to the completed salvation by Christ on the cross, so since that point the, the, in the, with the beginning of the church age, anyone who believes in Christ as Savior are instantly baptized by the Holy Spirit, which means we're identified with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection, and instantly we are in the church. And so everyone who believes in Christ from that point until the rapture is a member of the church, the body of Christ. So that takes us to the fourth question, whose church is it? It's not your church. It's not my church. It's not some denomination's church. It is Christ's church. He died. He paid for our sin. We have been bought with a price so that we are Christ's. We are his body. So that is a glorious thing. A church, therefore, is going to be under the authority of Christ. And our fifth point, did I get that right? Yes. Who is the head of the church? Who is the ultimate authority over the church? The ultimate authority over the church is Christ. The ultimate authority comes from him, and he tells us how the church is to function, why it is to function, uh, he tells us what the goal of the meeting of the church is, and we are to not to make it up as we go along. But if you look across the scene in the world today, you find that a lot of churches are doing just that. They're making it up as they go along. Uh, 
They are not paying attention to what the Scripture says. And so these are not true biblical local churches or congregations. Scripture says Christ is the head of the church. This is stated in a number of passages, such as Ephesians uh, 4.15, Ephesians 5.23, and Colossians uh, 1.18, which reads, He is the head of the body, the church. See, the church is called the body in that phrase. He is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn, from the dead, he, that is Christ. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have preeminence. He is the focal point of the meeting of the church. It is not about me. It is not about how the music makes me feel. It is not about the ambiance of the church. Uh, the you know big joke is how many churches have fogging machines. I had no idea there were churches that had fogging machines until a few years ago. Because what they do is they define worship as a certain feeling. And so they have to create that feeling. You can't create that feeling. Worship is a response to the Word of God. And if you're not teaching the Word of God, then people are not going to have that kind of response. And so you're just trying to manufacture it through these artificial devices. That's not spirituality. That's just human effort to try to counterfeit what the Holy Spirit does. So Christ is the head of the church, and he tells us specifically in Scripture what the church is all about. The church is further defined as his body in a number of passages, Romans 7.4, Romans 12.5, 1 Corinthians 10.16 and 17, 1 Corinthians 12, 12-27, all through Ephesians and Ephesians 4 4, 4 12, 4 16, and 5 30, Colossians 1 18 and 24. All of these verses talk about the church as the body of Christ. Colossians 2 19 and 29, Colossians 3 15, and Hebrews 13 3. These are all the passages that talk about the fact that we are members of the church, the universal church, the body of Christ and that he is our authority. And that is mediated through a local church pastor who's an under-shepherd. Well, I did get the numbering wrong. This is point six. It's not point seven. The church is the mystery that is unknown in the Old Testament. See, there was nothing known about the church at all in the Old Testament. They didn't have a clue. It was all about Israel. That goes back to point one. There's a distinction between Israel and the church. The church did not begin until after the ascension of Christ. Israel was the focal point of God's plan in the Old Testament. So the church is a mystery. It's unknown, unrevealed in the Old Testament, and it's revealed only in the New Testament as a new people of God composed of a unity of Jew and Gentile uh, together. Ephesians 3, 5, and 6, which we spent a lot of time studying, where Paul says, which, that is related to the church, which in ages, in other ages, was not made known to the sons of men. It's not made known. They didn't know it. It's not made known to the sons of men as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets. So it's not even revealed until after the day of Pentecost. And purpose is, and what it, what's revealed is that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs or joint heirs 
of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel. So the new entity, uh, there's no ritual significance to being Jewish. Now Jew and Gentile are in this one new body, the body of Christ. So this should be point seven, not point eight. <clears throat> what sorts of churches are there? The am I, That screen's not on. Okay. I kept turning it on this morning. I don't know why it doesn't. Hopefully it'll come on. So what kind of churches are there? Well, there are three different ways in which we talk about the church. There's a universal church. That refers to all believers from the day of Pentecost until the rapture. So the ones who haven't been born yet, they're not part of the church yet. They've got to wait until they're born and they trust in Christ. So the universal church is all of those believers who've already died and all the ones who are alive were all equally members of the body of Christ. It's not related to denomination. It's not related to geography or ethnicity. We're all one in the body of Christ. Then there's the visible church. So you drive through Houston or you drive through Dallas and you see all kinds of churches. Dallas is really heavily churched. And you can go from, you know, one subdivision to the next in every corner just about in some places there's a church. That's the visible church. Some of those people are saved. Some of them are not saved. Some of them don't even have a clue. But that's the visible church. Then you have the third category, which is the local church, and this is a particular assembly where you have your primary and sustained relationship, where you go to study the Word of God and to learn and to grow spiritually. So those are the three terms. And a local church may be comprised of believers and unbelievers. I don't know everybody that's here this morning. Not everybody may be a believer. Most people probably are believers, but you just don't know. I can't look at somebody and tell whether they have trusted in Christ or not. So this is the local church may have maybe composed of believer and unbeliever, but they should be the ministry of the local church should be handled by those who are believers in Christ. Point eight, not point nine, as it says. What's the nature of the universal church? The the gifted leaders that we've talked about in verse eleven, the especially the evangelists and pastor teachers, which are the only ones who continued past. Uh, 100 A.D., they are given to the universal church. They're not given to a local church. They're given for the edifying of the body of Christ, not the edifying of West Houston Bible Church or First Baptist Church or Second Presbyterian Church or whatever. They're given to the body of Christ for the edification, the building up of the body, uh, the body of Christ. And... Um, so point nine, continuing, um, so they're, they're given, and then we go to point, this is point nine. Um, what is the nature of the local church? The local church is just a visible manifestation of the body of Christ meeting in a local assembly led by the pastor teacher who's aided by deacons and other leaders in the local church. And now some churches call use the term elder, others use the term uh, in a different sense than the Scripture does, the term bishop. But we've studied the passages that show that bis- the term bishop, episkopos, and the word for elder, presbyteros, were used synonymously. 
and they were to feed the sheep, and the word for feeding the sheep is the verb form of the word for pastor. And so that's the function of the leader. So it doesn't matter what you call the leader of the congregation, whether you call him a pastor, a bishop, an elder, it's what they're doing. They are to be feeding the sheep the word of God. Then point 10, not point 11, who supplies the leadership of the church universal and the church local? Who is it that provides that? It is Christ. He is the one who gave these gifted people in verse 11. So that's the background. Christ supplies the leadership. And then we come to point 11, which is really the point of great confusion today. How is the church related to the kingdom? And that, I, I hear this so often, well, do this for the kingdom. We need to add to the kingdom. Uh, scripture talks about the fact that we are citizens of the kingdom, but that's what's called a proleptic. That's our destiny. That's not where we are today because the kingdom isn't present today. So we have to understand something about what the nature of the kingdom is. First of all, the church is not the kingdom. The kingdom relates to Israel. Remember point one? Israel and the church are distinct. All of the promises related to the kingdom were codified in covenants God gave to Israel. You have, for example, the Davidic covenant that the king will be a physical descendant of King David from the Old Testament. And because he's a physical descendant of King David, he has a claim to the throne of David. So in order to have a kingdom, what do you have to have? You have to have a king, you have to have a territory, a piece of land, and you have to have a people. Those three things, and some would add a constitution. But you have to have at least those three things. Now, the king is promised and prophesied in the Old Testament to be a descendant of David. And he's going to sit on the throne of David. But that doesn't happen until Jesus Christ returns to the earth. You don't read of him being called the King of kings and Lord of lords until he returns to destroy the armies of the Antichrist at the end of the seven-year tribulation period. Until then, and we've studied this in detail when we went through the uh, ascension, looking back at verses Um, 7 through uh, 10 in this chapter, is that Christ is now seated at the right hand of the Father. Jesus speaks of it as being seated at his Father's throne in Revelation 3.20. So he's not seated on his throne. He's seated on his Father's throne. So it's really a distraction, a misnomer, and it leads to some real problems in theology if you think we're in the kingdom now and, that, and you talk about Jesus all the time, it's the king. He is not the king yet. He doesn't receive the crown until, as Daniel 7 or Daniel 8 puts it, until he goes to the Father during the tribulation period when it's about over and he is given permission then to come to the earth and to take the kingdom doesn't happen until then. He came the first time and offered the kingdom. The kingdom was rejected, and so the kingdom offer was rescinded. Uh, 
Jesus was crucified. It's not until Jesus comes back that he will establish the kingdom. So right now we have to recognize this distinction. The church is not the kingdom. The church is the bride of Christ who, when Christ comes, will come with the king, and we will rule and reign with the king in the uh, millennial or messianic kingdom. So how is the church related to this kingdom? Well, the word kingdom is used in a broad sense of the universal rule of God over all of his creation. And so you will have God referred to as the king in the Psalms, but it's not referring to Jesus, the second person of the Trinity. It's referring to God who is the creator. Second, it's used of the theocratic, that is the theo meaning God, krasis meaning rule, God's rule over Israel according to the Mosaic law. That is no longer in effect once the law ended. And then it's used to refer to the coming of Messiah to establish his kingdom in the future and regather all of the Jews, the regenerate Jews, back to Israel and establish the kingdom. That hasn't happened yet. Now that brings us to what we studied last time in Ephesians 4.12. The passage simply reads in the English, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. The problem is that the word for that's used there, the English preposition, is used three times. But in the Greek text, the first preposition is pros, and the second two are ace, which indicates there's a structure here. And so I went through all the options last time, and this was the option that best fits the situation, that Christ himself gave gifted leaders. First of all, for the immediate purpose of the equipping of the saints. That's why... He gave the leaders, my job is to equip the saints to do the work of ministry. That's the, sa- that's the immediate goal tied to the first statement. Uh, we're to equip the saints for the goal of the work of ministry. And then the ultimate goal is that that edifies or builds up the body of Christ. So that is the mission statement as it were, the job description of a pastor-teacher. And if a pastor-teacher is entertaining, notice, and I pointed this out when we studied it, it's not a pastor-motivator, it's not a pastor-encourager, it's not a pastor-evangelist, it's not a pastor-entertainer, it is a pastor-teacher. And too often today, there are those in in these various churches, and they're entertainers, they're motivators, they're encouragers, but that's not what the Scripture says the pastor's supposed to be. And it is only through teaching the instruction of God's Word that we become equipped to do the work of the ministry, which in turn will bring edification and strength to the body of Christ. So I translated this last time for the immediate purpose of training all church-age believers to do the work of service toward the ultimate goal of spiritually strengthening the body of Christ.
Now that brings us to the next part of this long sentence. Till we all come to the unity of the faith, of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That, now we have another result clause, that we should no longer be children, tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. But speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies. Every joint is every believer. Every joint supplies according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. So what does that tell us? What's the most important aspect of this? From verse 12, which talks about edifying or building up the body, to the last line for the growth of the body, for the edifying of itself in love. It's ultimately the purpose of the church is to spiritually strengthen the individual believer so that he can grow to maturity. I want you to notice that to understand verse 13, we have to look at it in the context, which is a contrast with 14. Until we come to the unity of the faith, the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, so verse 13 says our goal is maturity, in contrast that we should no longer be children, tossed to and fro and carried about by every wind of doctrine, So what you have here is a child who's unstable and living on a lot of deception versus those who are mature and stable. So the role of the pastor teacher is to bring them to maturity. When I read this, I'm often reminded of a statement I heard Dr. Earl Rodmacher, who's now with the Lord, but he was the president of Western Conservative Baptist Seminary, spoke at one of our pastor's conferences about 30 years ago, I made the point that the evangelical church is the largest nursery in the world. It is composed of nothing but spiritual babies in diapers, and the nursery workers, that's the pastors, don't have a clue how to get them out of diapers. And so what you get is all of these huge churches with a lot of babies who get uh, tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine because they're never taught any level of discernment. So 4.13 gives us the goal that we, are to come to, that we are to come to this point of two things, the unity of the faith, which will translate even the knowledge of the Son of God. So that's the first part, and we'll come back next time and start looking at the details of what's involved in that and just what that's talking about in relation to our personal spiritual growth and maturity. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study these things and be reminded of the fact that Christ has given these gifted people to the church, the whole body of Christ, for the purpose of our spiritual growth, our edification, our uh, maturity, that we should not be like babies, but that we should not be deceived and tossed about by every wind of doctrine. And yet when we look at the scenario in our world today, what we see is these examples of, uh, of children, of babies, of childishness, 
because there's a failure to learn your word and apply your word and grow spiritually. Father, we pray that we might take might not take for granted our own spiritual life and not take for granted the provision that we have through solid biblical teaching living in a world today where there's more available in terms of solid biblical teaching to the everyday believer than ever before in this church age, and yet there's more immaturity and selfishness and self-centeredness like just a spoiled infant. Father, we pray that we might not uh, lose heart, but that we might persevere and that we might uh, stay the course uh, to grow to spiritual maturity. Father, we pray, too, for anyone who may be here who's never trusted Christ as Savior, Maybe they don't really understand salvation, or maybe they have, but they're just foggy on the concept. But that salvation is a free gift, and all we have to do is take that free gift, accept that free gift, and we do that by trusting or believing that Christ died for our sins. He paid the penalty for our sin so that the issue is not our sin. The issue is trusting in Christ. And therefore, the gospel is that good news that by trusting in him, we're forgiven, we're cleansed. We have a new life in him that can never be taken away. And Father, we pray that you would make that very clear to each one that is here. And now, Father, we pray that you would uh, strengthen us and that you would give us an increasing hunger to know you, to know our Savior, and we do that through knowing your word. And we pray this in Christ's name, amen.